Hi, this is Chesney in Aarhus, Denmark. And this is Weldon in the Easter San France. And you're listening to American on the Outside. So, Chesney, did you uh, have a Thanksgiving meal uh, over in Denmark with your family? Well, of course I did. Um, Let me start off by saying happy holidays, Weldon. Uh, And to you, of course. It's it's the most wonderful time of the year. Um, (laughs) We we did have Thanksgiving here last Saturday because, of course, we don't get Thursdays and Fridays off anywhere else in the world. And we did the whole shebang. I have like a standard holiday meal. I find that it's easier to have like a standard holiday meal. I do it for Thanksgiving and then do it a month later at Christmas. Right, right. <laughs> because I know what is likely to be in stock. Sure. I know where I can find it. I know that I can buy extras in case they mysteriously disappear off the shelves. <laughs> um, so how about you? What did you guys do? Yeah, well, so um, we did sort of an abbreviated Thanksgiving. My mother-in-law is staying with us for a bit. And A, we have a very small kitchen because it's Paris. And it's actually not that easy to find a complete whole turkey uh, here. But you can get turkey breast, turkey thigh. So... Um, my wife sous vide a breast, and that was wonderful. And I smoked a turkey thigh. Uh, and then we made the normal sides. Uh, I we managed. It's it's weird the stuff you can't find like cornmeal. Um, like you can sort of substitute a fine enough polenta, but that exactly. doesn't really work. And same with grits with a coarser polenta. Sure, right. But no, I had I had to go to the import store to find uh, to find just Quaker cornmeal. Um, and then the other one that really eludes us sometimes is sweet potatoes because they don't distinguish between what I call a yam and what I call a sweet potato, right? Like the, the white on the inside or purple on the inside versus the orange on the inside. Right. To them, it's just all the same root. And so I have to like surreptitiously scratch off the skin to see. And they know the shopkeepers know this time of year Americans are doing that. So they're like, they're, they've got their eyes out. Oh, like, hey, no. don't stop scratching the skin <laughs> off the sweet potatoes. <laughs> so. That aren't sweet potatoes. They're right. It turns out it's a yam. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. It sounds like your Thanksgiving meal is very similar to our Thanksgiving meal. Um, cornbread stuffing. Sure. Sweet potato casserole of some sort. Mm-hmm. Do you do the marshmallows? No, no, uh, we do not. Um, I was not supposed to eat too much sugar as a child. Mm. And so uh, our, our now that was partly, I'm sure they had a good reason. Also, just I was the, the oldest. And so my parents were like, we're going to raise this child right and, and, you know, avoid the evils of sugar. And of course, by the time my sister is in high school, they're like, here, have Lucky Charms. Like, yeah. we, we don't care. Have, just, have a Pop-Tart <laughs> for breakfast. It's fine. Exactly. Uh, but so, yeah, we, we didn't do and We also 
we never did the green bean and onion string thing that is apparently very popular. Uh, I don't know if that's more a Midwestern than a Southern thing, but... The green bean casserole with the cream of mushroom soup and... Cream of mushroom soup and the onion strings. That's never something we did growing up, but I've come to... As an adult, being at other people's Thanksgiving, I've sort of come to associate that with, with the holiday. It very much is. And it was something that I, I experienced as a child of <clears throat> the South mm-hmm. at Thanksgiving time. We do have sweet potatoes here in Denmark, like proper, oh. proper, large, bolder, mm-hmm. hard mm-hmm. to cut sweet potatoes. Right, right. <laughs> wood on the inside right <laughs> yes and I, every year i'm like i always buy way more than i need i bought two sweet potatoes to make sweet potato casserole this year and it was way too many sweet potatoes i could yeah. have gotten by with one at home we would do marshmallows on top because my parents were not anti-sugar <laughs> right <laughs> um, uh, but i find at least in denmark and in germany that marshmallows melt strangely i think it's because they use actual gelatin here is it because they they dissolve into like a syrup yeah and and the ones in the u.s use like agar agar or something and the ones here use gelatin okay because i have yet to find a a marshmallow here even the ones that are labeled american Mm -hmm. still just they don't in america when you put a marshmallow in an oven Puffs up a little and it browns nicely and yeah, it's yeah. all gooey and yummy. And you can make a s'more with it. You can stuff. make a s'more yeah. with it. But here, and especially in Germany, like any marshmallow that I tried there, and I tried multiple brands <laughs> of marshmallows for this, it would just dissolve into like this syrup Puddle. on top. Yeah. yeah. On top of the sweet potatoes. That was very, it was very disappointing. So I gave up on that and I make like a, I call it a Danish crumble because this time of year they have uh, this cookie called a pepper, which is a pepper nut that is Mm. kind of the spicy ginger little nugget. And then they also make this browned almond that is sort of tossed in brown sugar and cooked. So Mm. it has like this almond inside this candy coated shell. It smells amazing, tastes awesome. Uh, so I basically pound those into like a dust and then I mix it with mm. brown sugar and butter and sprinkle that on top of my sweet potatoes. That sounds amazing. <laughs> it's really good. And it could be dessert. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but, you know, it's we're from the South. It's got to have butter yep. and, and butter sugar. <laughs> and sugar. Butter, butter, and sugar. My, uh, my w- wife... You know, she, her family's from India, and mm. rice is is huge there. We we eat a lot of rice in Mississippi too, but mm. it, I put butter and sugar on rice, and she's mm. just like aghast at the at that thought. Yeah, absolutely. Put butter. Used to put butter on my rice, and now I can't find a good like American long grain rice. I always use jasmine now. Yeah, I've switched to basmati again because that's mm. what my wife uses, uh, mm. and I've I've made dirty rice with it. It's surprisingly good. Mm. Uh, Works really well. I like the jasmine rice with red beans and rice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's really, really good. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because a lot of these southern recipes um, came through the Caribbean, African Mm. influence, 
which was itself influenced by India, like okra. We have it in gumbo. Right. But it's, uh, you know, it's this West African. It's it's pretty popular in Paris because they colonized West Africa. And uh, you see a lot of gumbo in the era, uh, okra. Right. In the vegetable stands here. But it's called gumbo, which is just a great word. The only place I've been able to find okra here in the specialty shops, mm. the Central Asian specialty shop has it. And I fry it. Yes. Because, again. The South. The South. Did you do a whole turkey or, or did you do parts? That's the thing. Germany and Denmark, just like just like Paris. When I first moved here, you couldn't find a whole turkey. Mm-hmm. And all turkey breasts, not even turkey legs or anything like that. So I would just do my thing with the turkey breast, skinless, boneless uh, turkey breasts. So I had to uh, come up with like my way to like not dry them out. The secret is brining. Brining. We have we have learned to brine here. But this year, a lot of whole turkeys, just hmm. fresh whole turkeys out in the shops, just everywhere. I wow. saw seven in, in one place. And two, three years ago, that was unheard of in this part of Europe. My wife did a fabulous experiment this year. Oh, do tell. So uh, the the turkey breast was skinless, but the thigh was skin on. So I took the skin off mm-hmm. and she herb dusted it and then baked it between two baking sheets at a high temperature till, until it became like a, a, a frico. Okay. Uh, and it was the best thing I've ever put in my mouth. Like, it's oh, wow. just, yeah. So I, I recommend that strongly. Oh, if she has a recipe, let's put it up on the let's put it up we on the will, website. We will put it on the website. <laughs> Absolutely. So, what are your what are your plans for the holidays? So, we're going to uh, Strasbourg mm-hmm. uh, for a couple of days to see the Christmas market there. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a there's some nice Christmas markets in Paris, so we'll be doing that and getting the the gifts we're gonna get for family and friends and stuff. Um, other than that, just, uh, you know, my, like I said, my mother-in-law's here and we're just enjoying spending time at home with family, you know, cause we hadn't seen her in, in so long. Right. Uh, what about y'all? You have any, uh, any agenda? We're toying with the idea of heading down to Hamburg for a few days. Once the kids are out of school, we've not made any firm plans on that yet. Um, yeah, things are kind of up in the air. In the world right now. Right. I mean, that's uh, we're both sort of, I'm sure, looking at the numbers in our respective countries. Yeah. And uh, they're not looking that good right now. No, um, they're not. But let's let's not bring it down. No, you're right. You're right. <laughs> let's keep it up. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. But if we do go down to Hamburg, we'll go to the Christmas market. Mm-hmm. We'll see friends. Yeah, we'll, we'll do all the, the Christmassy stuff. We're on our own this Christmas. My mother-in-law was in town for thanksgiving she mm-hmm. came in early november and she stayed until day after thanksgiving so we get to have thanksgiving with her as well so that was nice oh does Ardus do anything special for christmas they have the most amazing walking street pedestrian walking mm. shopping street that they I'll, I'll put a picture up on, on instagram mm. it's just gorgeous if you've been to spain in the summer 
then you've probably seen the pedestrian areas covered in cloth to yeah, sort of shade yeah. folks because it's very hot and shade is good. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing here, but with lights. Oh, wow. For like, I don't know, a good 10-minute, 15-minute mm. walk all the way down the walking street. It's really beautiful. They have a rooftop observation deck on one of the department stores. You can go up and see the mm. whole town. Oh, wow. All, all in lights. It's very pretty. Yeah, and uh, I still, uh, this is shameful. Uh, I've still not been to the top of the Eiffel Tower so that this might be the time to do it uh, some evening because Paris, of course, famously lights up and they do it so well for Christmas. Yeah. Um, the other thing is like the Champs-Élysées and the the big stores like the Gallery Lafayette mm. uh, all do these just insanely good Christmas displays. It's like very famous. So I do hope uh, to go see those. Do you guys have a seasonal drink in that part of the world? Uh uh, no, there's no equivalent of like Glühwein or anything. It's uh, the, I, there's, I guess that's not true. In Alsace, they do a mulled wine. Um, so to the extent that even in Paris, a Christmas market sort of pretends it's in Strasbourg. <laughs> so you, you, there will probably be mulled wine there. What about in Denmark? Um, glog. 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 It's. It <laughs> is a. Spiced wine that at the bottom they put almonds and raisins, Ooh. and you, so basically it's a meal. Uh, oh, you 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 eat the the yeah, liquor yeah. soaked. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. At the end, drinking your hot spiced wine, you can have a little something on your stomach. And of course, you know Germany has Glühwein, and right. um, they do all kinds of fun things with it. I can remember the first time I went to a Christmas market there and saw. Glue wine with a shot of rum. <laughs> that seems like a lot of a lot of alcohol. Yeah, uh, they do like the brandy here mm. uh, this season. Um, and there's even there's like a bar game where they'll, they'll soak raisins in brandy and light it on fire. Mm. And you're just supposed to. Uh, they don't do this anymore because I'm I'm sure thousands of people have died in the resulting com- uh, conflagrations. But it's there's still paintings. I think Toulouse Lautrec did a painting of it of like. Mm. Three guys, you know, reaching into a flaming bowl of raisins and popping them into their mouth. Um, but the brandy is still popular. Do you do Krampus in uh, in Denmark? We don't do the Krampus in Denmark. I will say that the nearby Viking Museum is having mm-hmm. uh, Christmas creatures. Okay. It's like, I don't know, like eight or ten creatures from northern europe mythology that come out around this time of year okay. and one of those like father frost mm-hmm. krampus santa lucia um <laughs> the christmas cat and i'm gonna say cat. the christmas cat i gotta say i read up each character is profiled <laughs> on their website um and i gotta say some of them are scary yeah yeah no, Krampus is like nightmare fuel. In fact, all of them are kind of creepy and scary. Yeah. Um, but for each of the Sundays or weekends of Advent, they have hired people to come and portray these characters. And they'll come out in the afternoons and, I guess, tell stories and be all creepy. <laughs> <laughs> We're taking the kids. <laughs> yeah. So, well, then tell us about this week's guest. Well, uh, this is 
an old college friend of mine, Witt, uh, and he lives now in Stuttgart, Germany. Uh, so a little farther south than Hamburg, but yeah. <laughs> and a little farther east than Strasbourg. Um, and I, he's somebody I've known for 20 years. I think he's just a really interesting literary and cultural critic. He teaches basically American studies at the university there. Uh, and, well, I'll let him speak for himself, I guess. Okay. So this is Wit in Stuttgart. So, Wit, we're going to start the way we start all of these interviews. Where are you from? Good question. Um, where am <laughs> I from? I was uh, born in, in New York, Staten Island, but I grew up in Washington, D.C., so I guess I'm really from the Washington, D.C. area. Um, although, I, you know, I sort of think fondly back to New York as as my place of origin just because I was born there. Um, but yeah, I grew up in the D.C. area and, and Silver Spring, Maryland, mostly. Um, and uh, then eventually did move back to New York as an adult. But mm. um, yeah, yeah, from the D.C. area, basically, I think is is probably the best answer for that question. So what were your what were your parents doing in the D.C. area? Why were you guys there? Um, my dad is from there. My dad is from Washington. My dad's, yeah, my dad's from, from Washington. His whole family's in Washington. His family has been in Washington for a while, with the exception of his um, biological father, um, who I never actually met. I've only seen him once. That was in his casket. Um, but uh, he was, his. my dad's biological father was from New York, but the rest of his family was from, from Washington, D.C., which is why he's from there. My mother's family was from Pittsburgh. So she met my dad at some point in Washington. She was in Washington for some reason, and they met there. And then she moved to uh, D.C. When they, got, when they got married, which involved a lot of traveling around, which is how I was born in New York. They were in New mm -hmm. York for a while. They were in Pennsylvania for a while where my brother was born. And then they returned um, to Washington, D.C. and the Washington, D.C. area, which ended up with me being with me growing up, I should say, in Silver Spring. So what was uh, your favorite subject in school back then? My favorite subject in school? I guess it depends. You know, like great... In, in high school, it was theory of knowledge, which was basically mm. a philosophy class. But this is theory of knowledge was a strange class because that was IB. That was International Baccalaureate, which is the only class I think I really liked in all of my school years, <laughs> which is why probably that's the one I mentioned. Um, Fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, uh, are, is there something you particularly enjoyed about uh, growing up in, in MoCo in D.C.? Oh, gee. Um, yeah, I mean, it's the schools are good. It's wealthy. You're privileged. I mean, and, and you don't really realize, I guess, how privileged you are sort of growing up in Montgomery County and going to Montgomery County public schools until you're older. But I, you know, I mean, I can't complain, right? I mm. had a good education, really had, you know, considering we were fairly lower middle class, not really poor, but lower mm -hmm. middle class. Like I had a lot of advantages being in Montgomery County, just in general, right? Sure. Um, and benefit, benefiting from being in a fairly wealthy county. So what, uh, what happened after high school? After high school? Um, yeah, well, 
<laughs> you all know that story. I went to St. John's. Um, yeah, and as, as St. John's, I didn't think I was going to go to college. I thought I was hmm. going to go to um, bartending school. That was the plan. Um, I was all set up to go to bartending school. I had no plans of going to college. And then um, the brochure for, from St. John's arrived in the mail, right? Um, I don't know if you got the same one, but like, I, I the following <laughs> tutors will be returning to St. John's next year. And it's like Aristotle, Sophocles, you know, Descartes. And I'm like, oh, wow, cool. Um, that sounds like something that I could do, you know, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna do the college thing, right? Like it's right. gonna be something like this. Um, so then I was like, okay, I'll apply. So I applied to St. John's. That was it. So for, um, listeners who are not familiar, maybe with St. John's, could, could you, could you talk a little bit about the, the structure of the college and, and how it works? Cause you are both Johnny's and, um, it's, it's not a traditional university as we tend to think of it, is it? No. Um, and let me let me just jut, butt in. This is a particularly fraught year to ask particularly <laughs> wit this question. So, <laughs> yeah, I might be the wrong person to ask, right? Like, because um, I'm, I, you know, I'm sort of notoriously a critic of the school. Um, but uh, it's it, you know, it's a four year program that studies the classics of Western literature, the great books, right? Quote unquote. Um, starting with um, uh, Greek, your Homer. first year, yeah, and then you go into sort of more your second year Roman and uh, uh, Christian theology. Uh, third year is, is is Enlightenment, and then fourth year is sort of turn of the century, approaching turn of the century. Um, St. John's believed writing ended in 1928, <laughs> I think. All right. <laughs> okay. There's some stuff, some pretty good stuff that came after that. I mean, just saying. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, I mean, it's a highly conservative liberal education, um, liberal mm -hmm. arts education. Um, and uh, yeah, you study basically the great books of Western literature as it was understood up until, yeah, um, early 20th century. So not to open up a can of worms, but to open up a can of worms, why are you such a critic of the school? What do you wish that they could Im improve upon or how do you feel it? Um, I'm a critic of the school, I guess, because it, it sort of follows this very conservative concept of, of great books, Western literature, the, I mean, right in a, in a nutshell, the sort of old, dead, white, male, great um, sort of myth that fuels a lot of Western civilization and, and thought. And it, it's cool to, to study all that stuff. There's a really a lot of great works that we read, um, really a lot of wonderful literature. I mean, um, a lot of bad literature too, to be honest, but um, <laughs> but that's fine. I mean, the, the thing is that I guess the way that it's handed to you, right? You go to, to St. John's and they're like, we'll teach you how to think, blah, blah, blah. And of course, yeah. right, they're sort of, setting up the framework as to how you think, right? Mm -hmm. Anybody who's sort of purporting to teach you how to think, right, is already selling you a grift in a sense, right? So, mm -hmm. yeah. And I, I mean, I think it's, I think even then it's changed since we were there in some ways. That's like, I think true. a lot of us of our generation, at least I certainly looked on it as reading as an inoculation. Like these are the books that have unknowingly shaped your mental space. Mm -hmm. And this helps make you aware of what that is. But it's taken a much more large C conservative 
swerve, I think, in the past couple de- decades, maybe, uh, that that instead, you know, these are the edifice of all civilization rather than these are stumbling blocks you may want to be aware of. But mm-hmm. I guess mileage may vary there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Right. And, and that's the thing. I mean, it really needs to be sort of put in that framework. I think I think Weldon puts it sort of wonderfully. These books influence the way that you think. Absolutely. There's no question about that. And, and I think sort of the more interesting approach is to how do we think about these texts in relation mm-hmm. to sort of, you know, what's come after them, how we live our lives now and et cetera, instead of, you know, the St. John's approach, which is to sort of take the texts as you know, contextless in a sense, right? mm-hmm. we have face value as if these texts are just sort of handed down the sort of morsels of wisdom that exist outside of history or outside of historical context or outside of intellectual historical context, etc. Right. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So if you recall at our commencement, the dean described that process as being evicted from the garden. So after the garden, what was your first grown-up job, sort of your first adult experience? Yeah, my first job out of St. John's was a cool job, and I shouldn't have quit it. Um, it was, uh, <laughs> I, I got a job working in Bethesda, Maryland for a little company that um, published martial arts magazines and newsletters for dojos around the area. So the magazine so cool. was for the business owners of the dojo and the newsletter was were for the kids who were actually attending the classes. And I wrote and designed the entire newsletter, which was fun. <laughs> you know, wow. I was like Microsoft publisher, right? Sure. Coming at square. <laughs> <laughs> but um that yeah, was really cool. And you know, I just worked there for the summer after after I graduated because I had plans with um with another another uh, Johnny actually to move to Paris. Our idea was to sort of move to Paris and be expats, um, which eventually I became under completely different circumstances. But uh, but yeah, so we did that. I quit my job with my little two thousand dollars that I'd saved <laughs> <laughs> and moved to Paris, thinking like, yeah, okay, I'm just gonna live here forever on two thousand dollars a dollar. So what did you do when you got to Paris with $2,000 and a dream? We just hung out and drank wine. Like, <laughs> really, we didn't find a job. You know, we, we made a few half-assed attempts of, like, sort of stumbling half-drunk into bookstores and being like, uh, I don't really speak any French. Did you eventually get a job in Paris or? No, no, never. We were there about a month and a half and then we ran out of money and had to come <laughs> home. Yeah. What, what's funny is like, and I don't mean to dismiss your experience, just that you can still see people, Americans doing this in Paris every year. Like you can tell when the schools, schools have gotten out and <laughs> the graduates are chasing their dream. And, and you know, I blame Hemingway because he, he made them think it's yeah, possible. Right? But... <laughs> Um, so fast forward, uh, how did you wind up in Stuttgart? Yeah, so that's a, also a, a sort of long story that begins back when I was living in Boston. And I was living with two other people who were also Johnny's, actually. And we were looking for a third roommate. We had one more roommate that we had to, to let. 
And we put an ad out and a bunch of people answered, but the person we liked best was, was um, a young lady from Stuttgart, Germany, Anne, and uh, my future wife. The time I didn't know it, of course. But so we were all friends and we hung out and we had a good time together for a year living in Boston. And then I moved to New York. I was in New York for 12 years. And then she, um, her company has an office um, in New York. And so she transferred to that office for a couple months. And while she was there, we started hanging out because I was already in New York and she was in the New York office. So yeah, and, and then it just sort of blossomed into a thing. And um, and and uh, yeah, she went back to Stuttgart and then I got a call maybe a week or two later after she left Stuttgart and she was like, oh yeah, I'm pregnant. Um, which we knew was a possibility, of course. Um, you know, uh, we were old enough to realize <laughs> <laughs> how the world works be to that 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 um, consequence um so in any case yeah th this was 2012 so in 2013 i moved to germany yeah in april 1st 2013 i moved to stuttgart germany and i've been here ever since so it's been yeah eight years now wow <clears throat> oh wow believable yeah it's amazing so how do you spend your time in Stuttgart outside of being a family man? Outside of being a family man, I teach. I, I, I teach at the university. I'm now at University of Stuttgart. That sort of worked out exceptionally well. I, I got really lucky with that. While I was here, I applied for a master's mm. at the university and, and got into the master's program. That was fine. I completed my master's, did really well. And then, and then I decided I wanted to, to continue on. So I just approached the head of the anglistic department, English studies department, and he was new, you know, the way that it works in Germany is you have your sort of chair of the department who has to be a full professor. And that means to be a full professor, you have to have a postdoc. You can't just have your doctorate. You have to mm -hmm. actually call the habilitation and that um, comes after your doctorate and then your full professor. And they're always the people who are sort of the head of the departments. And the previous head of the department was headed out. He's He was fairly old, and so he was going into retirement, and so uh, a new guy was taking over. Um, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe being a professor is is sort of, it's a cultural heavyweight thing in Germany, correct? Extremely, uh, yeah. extremely. If you've got the professor title, <clears throat> you're at the top of the sort of like cultural, intellectual food, food chain. Mm. So yeah, yeah, your respect level. <laughs> um, yeah, so 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 that was good. I mean, it worked out really well because he was sort of building a new team, you know. And so I came in at right at like the right moment, you know. It was like right mm -hmm. place, right time. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, I want to do my doctorate. And he was like, okay, great, you know. Um, he looked at he looked at my uh, MA scores, of course, my my grades, which were really good. Um, and he was like, yeah, we'll take you on. I mean, I'm a native speaker. I'm an American, um, African-American, which adds a different sort of perspective, mm -hmm. you know, so it's a very sort of unique thing. You know, I benefited in a lot of ways because of identity, you know. Mm -hmm. um, Do you teach in German or in English? In English. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what do you what do you teach? What's your specialty? So we were, the way the department was set up, it was American literature and English literature. And when he took over, the new, the new chair took over, um, Professor Preve, um, 
he decided that he wanted to go in the direction of American studies. Hmm. So sort of broaden the scope. So so we're really now like the American studies department, which means that I teach everything from literature classes, which is mostly what I teach, to also American studies classes, which covers everything from American history to politics to culture. Mm -hmm. So pretty much the podcast in a classroom. So what would you say is the biggest difference between Germany and the U.S. as living there? Oh, wow. The biggest difference between Germany and the U.S. <laughs> um, just little cultural differences. For the most part, there aren't a huge number of culture shocks that you experience, right? It's a different country, different language different attitudes, but the weirdest thing, I guess, is probably the Germans' relationship with the, the, the U.S. itself, right? Wow. Germans really sort of have a, a love-hate relationship, a, right? A frenemy relationship with the U.S., where they emulate the U.S. and kind of want to be the U.S., but also don't want to be the U.S. because they're also very European in outlook. And a lot of this is because of the aftermath of World War II, of course, right? Um, sure. Sort of swooping in and, and and saving basically German economy, and that's strange because I'm already American, <laughs> right? And I already have my sort of weird relationship with my country, right? Mm -hmm. Which right. is also you know sort of love hate in a, in a way. It's strange, right? This, this sort of German relationship to American culture and this sort of love hate relationship that they have with American. I mean I find it interesting. I see this in France a lot. This it's as an American, it's so strange to me to see young people adopting American consumerist culture as a as a consciously rebellious act, which right, you know, yeah. is sort of the opposite of of how it reads to me. But obviously, to them, you know, it, uh, uh, taking on words from American hip hop pisses off the Académie Française, uh, and so people do it, you know, and uh, uh, I'm sure there's similar things in Germany, too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, right? Uh, sort of rebellious to, to, to take on American culture and to, yeah, yeah. I totally get what you're saying about the love-hate relationship that the German public seems to have with America, because when I lived there, I lived in Hamburg for several years, and um, and this, it is kind of strange because they, on the one hand, they're really pulling for the United States. But on the other hand, like when something bad happens, there's a little bit of schadenfreude there. They're, they're like, yeah. see, it can happen to you. And <laughs> right. you're, you're not above it all. Ha! Knew it. <laughs> but we were also hoping yeah. that you were above it all. <laughs> so it's this, this sort of um, weird dichotomy of, of feelings and, and ideas and I guess comes from I guess comes from World War II and the aftermath yeah yeah I think that's really that that really is is where this comes from because it's it's very strange I it, it's almost like there's a parallel for everything but you know I mean we have Q, QAnon's a big thing here in Germany right, like that right. should just be an American thing like I <laughs> like I get it in America it makes sense in the context of like the American craziness sure QAnon why not right <laughs> but why well, is it Dusseldorf what, what's going yeah on? exactly right 
Well, so Antifa originated in Germany, and it's a thing that is completely misunderstood mm-hmm. in the United States. So there's there is a lot of back and forth there's sharing, and forth. Yeah. yeah, of culture, but also kind of like a misunderstanding of the of culture at the same time. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a that's a great example because that's absolutely true, right? Antifa mm-hmm. started. And here in Germany, and of course, it's been appropriated in the U.S. and sort of misunderstood, you know, in the appropriation, and and the same is here with sort of QAnon and other conspiracy theories. So, when was the last time you were in the U.S.? Two years ago now, basically two years ago exactly. Um, so, like right before the the world right shut down, before the whole thing, November of two thousand nineteen. I had a conference in um, Honolulu that I was attending. Oh, poor you. Yeah, it was cool. I flew out to, um, it was cool because I was hearing, I I was listening to your podcast about long flights and I was thinking, oh yeah, (laughs) about long flights. I I flew from Frankfurt to San Francisco and on the way there, I stopped a couple of days in San Francisco just because I'd never been. And so it was a great opportunity to sort of see the city. Um, and then a couple of days later, I, I completed the flight to Honolulu. But on the way back, I had to fly, you know, the whole way. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. So it's, you know, between leaving my hotel and getting to my front door was about 24 hours, <laughs> six hours from Honolulu to San Francisco and then San Francisco to uh, Frankfurt's another 12 hours. And then between waiting oh. at airports and uh, then the train from Frankfurt to Stuttgart and so on and so forth. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've said every time a flight lasts more than 10 hours, it becomes a Hieronymus Bosch painting like that. <laughs> I, 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 under, I understand his, his paintings better every time yeah, I do right. that. <laughs> yeah, really. So, um, but, but, but that was the last time, yeah, two years ago. And it wasn't even to see my family or anything, which is, oh, wow. yeah. It was really just San Francisco and, and Honolulu, which, you know, I have no, I had friends that I saw in San Francisco, which was cool. Sure. But, um, but I have no family out there. When was the last time you saw your family in person? Um, so that would have been, yeah, not 2019 then, but 2018, because mm-hmm. we would try and go every year, at least, you know, and so 2018 I went and then 2019, I think we had we had planned to go actually in 2020 summer to go back again in summer of 2020. Um, yeah, that just didn't happen. So 2018, yeah, it's been yeah. really a long time. Have you noticed, maybe not from year to year or or over the course of of going back from year to year, have you noticed changes in particular to the U.S. since you sort of stopped living there full time? That's hard to tell. Um, right. You know, I, I mean, you know, the the, the, at the last time I was there, I guess I would say the, the general feeling in the air was a little more depressed because I was in, you know, D.C. and, you know, Trump was president. Mm-hmm. And so there was that. Um, but now, I mean, I don't know. I Now it, it, it's been so long being away for two years and then hearing just the news. I think, you know, like, what is this country? Like, do <laughs> Right. <laughs> exactly. And maybe it would have always been like that if I had been just hearing the news from Europe and not been living in the country, you know. But now it's just like, do, huh? do I really like want to go to this country? Like, this sounds like a really crazy place. 
<laughs> and I know it's like, you know, that's just sort of the transmission of the news. And then when you're there, it's okay. It is crazy, but it's manageable. But uh, I look forward to going back because I, I sort of start to feel more and more this distance, which is weird. And am I just reacting to sort of news media cycles about the country? Mm-hmm. And from the country, not just from the German press, from the U.S. itself, right? Um, right. Would you uh, would you move back to the U.S.? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's something that we seriously consider. And it, it, it's something that, depending on politics, depending on how things go, I mean, you know, German university careers are not the most stable to begin with. There's a lot of, that's, that's a whole thing um, I, itself. I, I have terrible news for you about U.S. academic careers. With <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I know, but it's it's worse in German Germany, huh. which is unbelievable. Wow. There's this whole thing um, hashtag Ich bin Hanna, when Hanna is this I'm Hannah. It's this fictional character who you know goes through the German university system, and it's well, not I've seen that these memes, yeah. Yeah, it's it's not that big a deal for me because I'm a little bit older actually, which is funny, but. For example, in the German system, when you sort of become a doctor, uh, yeah, when you become a doctorate, um, you have a six-year contract, and they'll renew that one more time for you, or a three-year contract, and they'll renew mm-hmm. that one more time for you. So you have six years to complete your doctorate. After that, you can get a job working, you know, as a what we would call a professor in the U.S., but which isn't quite a professor in Germany. And then you have the same deal. You have six years to work. And you either do your habilitation after that, which means that you become a full professor, which means you become head of a department, which means you go on to basically administrative kind of jobs, or you're kicked out of academia. Um, Mm. And that means that you have 12 years, basically, in academia, and then you're out. So if you start, right, if you start as a doctor uh, when you're 30, that means you could get kicked out at 42 with no other sort of job experience except the university and the academic world. And then you're a 42-year-old with no job prospect, no job background, no, you, you know, you're just this sort of washed up academic at 42. And there's a there's a limited number of spots you're competing for, right? It's not yeah, like and there's yeah. on top of that, right? There's no guarantee that these twelve years will even happen for you, right? That's if you're lucky, right? So so you know, um, yeah, that could just leave you high and dry, right? And a lot of people find ways around that, right? They go, they work at institutes, right? You can mm-hmm. work at an institute um, that does sort of like academic research that is in a university. And then you can find a job that'll, you know, get you something where you have a contract that's not just a three-year limited contract. But, but, but it's a real problem. Like a mm. lot of people find themselves sort of in the prime of their lives without any prospects because they've just been academics their whole adult careers, right? Mm. Um, yeah. And it's a. Am I right? It's a much smaller percent of the population that's even going to university to begin with compared to the U.S. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't want to 
I don't know the numbers, but but they have a, a, a sort of filtering process, mm -hmm. right? So like you like you either went to gymnasium or you yeah. didn't, and if you didn't, you're you're really not going to university. You're not right? going to yeah. university. I mean, there are exceptions, right? Sure. There's the guy who does it, right? Who like goes through the <laughs> whole roundabout route and ends up managing to end up at uh, university after you know going to after Hoch school, school yeah, or something like that. Um, but uh, for the most part, yeah. And, and this is another problem with this sort of German education system. A lot of people's lives are determined after they graduate from fourth grade, right? Mm -hmm. And that's where they decide whether you go to gymnasium or not, right? So, yeah. you know, I mean, and obviously who does it benefit? It benefits the people who come from wealthier backgrounds and more well-to-do backgrounds. Sure. And, yeah, yeah. After uh, an interview, we ask some questions. Um, what is your favorite German word? Favorite German word? Um, that's a, that's it. That's a good question. Do I have one? I don't really have one. But everyone mentions this word that's hard to pronounce for Germans in English and hard for Americans to pronounce in German, right? Squirrel. Or <laughs> So I'll go with that. I it, it, it's a cool it's a cool word anyway. So I'll go with Eichhörnchen. Yeah, Eichhörnchen. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's well said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's also very funny because people make fun of the way the Germans say squirrel, but like that's a hard word for an English person to say. There's a yeah, lot of Eichhörnchen. Just in general, right? Yeah, it's like um, that's not a slouch word. <laughs> <laughs> um what's the song that's been playing in your head lately the song that's been playing in my head um another good question most of the pop music so i mostly listen to jazz but most of the pop music i listen to i listen to because of my um kids mm. you know and so my kids are right now you know in this sort of phase where they're listening to they only like women uh, artists for the mm -hmm. most part and because they're both girls mm -hmm. and and they they they're hip-hop fans so like Lizzo so I guess you know when I do the 20 second hand wash thing <laughs> I do good as hell so I do my nice. hair touch, check my nails <laughs> so I guess that <laughs> that's a good one that's good <laughs> what is a smell that you love a smell that reminds you of home Oh, probably bagels baking in New York. Um, yes. Bagels in New York, the smell of bagels baking in the morning. There are no bagels. They can't do them. They, they, they get them wrong. They just don't know how to do a bagel. I've never, not once, in the eight years that I've been here, had a halfway decent bagel. And adding insult to injury, in Paris, the bagel shops open at noon. What? Right? <laughs> It's like what what part of this have you failed to understand that you're opening at noon? Now there's an urban myth, and it may actually be fact. I don't know, but the reason that New York bagels are so amazing is because of the water. Yeah, yeah, that's the myth, right? There's something about the water that makes them really like, like yeah, they pipe it in from the Catskills or something, and and yeah, I don't know, but <laughs> like filtered. 37 different times. I don't know. Has some sort of mineral in it. I don't know. Curious. Um, what is one thing that everyone should see in Stuttgart? 
one thing that everyone should see. I don't know. It's not it's it's not the best city for sightseeing. I mean, there are things. There's the TV tower and there's like the Porsche Museum. But I mean, if someone were just to visit Stuttgart, I would say just do a walk through downtown. That's mm. probably mm. the best part of Stuttgart. I mean, I would say stop at the Kunst Gallery. The art museum here in Stuttgart is actually really good, surprisingly good. But it's also right downtown, and so the just sort of walking the mile is about a mile um, promenade that you have for Königstrasse, which is the big street that r- runs right through the center of Stuttgart, I would say is probably the most interesting thing about it, like the downtown area. It's really beautiful. It's really vibrant when when it's vibrant and not Corona time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the downtown area is, is really what I, I would suggest. And would you say Stuttgart, does that belong to wine Germany or beer Germany? Oh, both. Both. Oh, because, wow. Yeah, yeah, because it's South Germany, you know, um, the, the wine, the wine of Stuttgart, the, the wine of the Swabians is Trollinger. Um, Not to put Stamina? Trollinger. Um, T-R-O-L-L-I-N-G-E-R. You have to look it up. It's a really sweet, um, uh, it's similar to Pinot Noir. It's like a sweet Pinot Noir and it's sort of like a thin, a thin sweet Pinot Noir. It's not that good. To be honest, <laughs> but they love it. <laughs> but the Swabians love it, and you develop a taste for it, and it sort of goes with the food here. After a while, mm-hmm. you sort of get used to like the taste of of, of Trollinger and 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 the food um, from the region. But yeah, the red wine, right? And of course, Rieslings are really famous from mm-hmm. South Germany for white wines. There's also, of course, a lot of German beers because it's South Germany as well, and and. In Bavaria ran out of room for holding the beer. Yeah, Bavaria. <laughs> the best beers are Bavarian beers. The mm. stereotype is true. Mm. Um, you know, the best beers really are the Bavarian ones. <laughs> what brings you joy? What brings me joy? Oh, my family. You know, my family, of course. The kids and my wife and just time with the family. And what gives you hope? Hope? Oh, not much these days. Um, I, you know, I, it's, it, we're, it's, it's bleak times. I mean, I'm not joking when I look at the news and out of the U.S. and I'm like, I don't know. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I, I'm not sure that the U.S. democracy will survive. I'm not sure that Germany will, uh. um, you know, that, that, that Europe's fate is, is all that bright, you know, in general. So, I, you know, I mean, I don't know. I hope, of course, you can hope is one can always hope uh, my children. Right. I mean, that's that's probably the, the best answer. The fact that I have children, the fact that I invest in the future because my children are here and that I believe that there's, you know. You have to hope when you have children, you can't mm-hmm. you can't just sort of abandon yourself to despair. Mm-hmm. When do you feel the most American? When do I feel the most American? <laughs> All the time. More than, <laughs> more than I ever felt in America, American. Um, Interesting. Basically, it, it's unescapable, right? Like, I, I never really felt American in America because I never mm-hmm. felt like I belong here 100%, right? Mm-hmm. And that comes from not just being whatever, you know, an, an oddball. Also, of course, being African-American plays a role. And then, yeah, I mean, also just being, you know, an oddball. But um, 
But, you know, I mean, it's the cliche, right? James Baldwin said it, you know, nothing sort of reminds you of your Americanness as being, you know, in a foreign country. Mm-hmm. We're kind of reminded of that constantly. Mm-hmm. So where is home for you? Um, where's home for me? That's also a really good question. I mean, it's a loaded question because I have a family. So homes, I guess, here, but not really also, you know, which is which is also unfair to the family. So, you know, I mean, in a sense, nowhere. Right. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't know that. Yeah. Nowhere in a sense. But I guess wherever my family is, I mean, um, yeah. What's something you would like Americans back home to know? If you could tell them one thing, what would you tell them? Oh, tell Americans back home. Um, just in general about like either about about Germany or an observation about America from the outside. From the outside or something. Um, I don't know. You know, was maybe the most interesting thing that I could tell Americans is about is, is sort of the Afro-Deutsch movement. Mm. And I think, you know, Germans need to know about that as well. The Afro-Deutsch movement is sort of a movement that's in its infancy, I would say, even, mm. um, that started with Audre Lorde when she moved um, to Berlin and taught at the university. She really influenced a, uh, a, a young student named Mai Ayim, who was uh, German and Black. Um, and Mayaim started sort of consciously started this Afro-Deutsch movement. Unfortunately, she died really young. Um, so the movement in some ways not died with her because it's still going. But but it's it, it I think if she had lived longer, she could have added some more momentum to it. So it's something that I think, you know, has has an interesting way of sort of looking at transnational relations. Mm-hmm. Could you Could you just talk a little more about it? Yeah, so it it, it started with my Aim and and like I said, and she's um half uh, half black, half German um, poet uh, that that studied under Audre Lord, and she was really influenced by our ideas, and she she was interested in this 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 concept. Um, Lord hadn't framed it in this term, in these terms yet, but of intersectionality, right? Of mm-hmm. where you sort of have different identities that that cross and meet and how those work together. And so this became something that Aim um, really explored, not only in her poetry, but also in her master's dissertation, right? And her master dis- master's dissertation really launches the Afro-Deutsch movement, which is sort of looking at this um, intersection of being Black and German. And and what that means in this sort of global world, especially with Germany's history and uh, Germany's history and colonialism as well, which is also really interesting and sort of even by the Germans, amazingly sort of um, ignored for the most part. Um, and and Germany has a really brutal history in colonialism um, in terms of genocide, actually. Um, so so um, yeah, just looking at sort of the. Uh, this this problematic right relationship, which is which is in a way almost as problematic as African American, right? Where where there's there's also right this weird historical relationship, it's different, but but in but also interesting, right? So so, so the Afro Deutsch movement is is really just yeah kind of interested in in what it means to sort of be black and German, given Germany's history, given Germany's cultural history, given 
sort of the history of colonialism and yeah also sort of yeah uh, looking at uh, black history and the history of black migration into and out of Germany. That sounds really cool. Thanks. I, I have more to read now. <laughs> I know, right? We'll have to yeah, yeah definitely that. look it up because it, it, it's super fascinating. Absolutely. So, Whit, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Uh, yeah. I've really enjoyed catching back up and having this conversation. And uh, we wish you the best in Stuttgart. Yeah. yeah, thank you all for inviting me. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, it's really cool. And it's been been really cool catching up and, and hearing you guys talk. Like, yeah, it's... Like I said, it's a it, you, you all have a great podcast. I really enjoy it. Oh wow, thank you. Thank do, you. Do thank you so much. Job.